Good morning, everybody. <laughs> it's good to see you this morning. Uh, some of you I haven't met. Uh, I'm Pastor Scott, a senior pastor here, and I uh, would love to meet you if I haven't met you before. Uh, what we do at Calvary Chapel is uh, just make our way through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And it's a great discipline. It's a great uh, discipline for me uh, because we come across scriptures that are difficult, and today is one of those. So I'll just give you a heads up on that. We're in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. If you'd open up your New Testament there, Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll examine verses 1 through 12. And uh, before we read together, uh, I just context, okay? Uh, we're the author, the writer of the, this letter to a church, uh, which were Christians who had a Jewish background. Uh, they were experiencing troubles, persecution, and because of that, they were starting to drift. <laughs> it was his word. They're drifting, drifting away from Jesus Christ, from just holding on to him closely and, and depending on his power to help them in difficult times. And so the way they were sort of self-medicating, if I can use that word, is that they were drifting back toward Judaism. They were drifting back to the ways that they had practiced their religion prior to being born again, because that was less confrontational. And um, so the author is aware of that, and he is writing to them from that context. Really nervous. So, uh, God... Help, please, please. Um, chapter 6 is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks. He's begun to talk to them. He's sort of pinpointed a problem, and it was immaturity. Uh, spiritually immature. And that is because they were... Um, they really weren't obeying what the Word of God was saying for their lives. They were aware of the, what the words said, but they were not giving full attention to the Bible for themselves. And it was stunting their growth. And so the author mentions that. Let's actually pick it up at verse 11 of chapter 5, and we'll read through. Of whom that is Melchizedek, we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Um, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God or the scriptures, the word of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. And so that's my point. I think that's the author's point is that you, you have a Bible, but you're not using it. And by the way, just to remind you, the Bible that they possessed at this point in time was only the Old Testament. But he uh, was strongly encouraging them to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And that's what we attempted to do last week as we saw Melchizedek back in, Ex or in Genesis chapter 14 and how he is a type of Christ. And so... This is his point to them, that you're, you're, the, the stunting, the immaturity, your spiritual immaturity is because of your lack of application of the Word of God in your lives. 
verse 13, he goes on, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. By reason of use, by daily practice, just not reading, but applying what is read and trying to walk it out by faith. That's what he's saying there. And because of that, then they, their senses are exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, <laughs> application, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms, plural, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this let us do, if God permits. <laughs> for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth, little analogy here, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs, useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, but beloved, beloved, my dearly beloved friends, is what he's saying. The ones who I care so much about, the ones that I think about and pray for, the ones who are constantly on my heart and mind, it's the only time he uses that word in this letter. Right on the heels of what he's just said, that there is a line that you can cross, that there's a place of no return. Some of the hardest, most challenging words in all of the New Testament. And right on the heels of that, he says, but beloved... We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish or lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So I just want to open with an illustration, hopefully sort of get us into the flow here. Because of the context, particularly verses 4 through 6, are some of the most debated scriptures in all of the New Testament. Can a person lose their salvation or not? And this is one of those places where it would appear that they can or not. So we're going to go through this. Again, the advantage of a verse-by-verse -verse study, I would rather not do this, <laughs> but we don't have a choice. 
And it's good for us to wrestle with the Word of God and to be challenged. Because maybe, and, and I would just say to you, whenever you approach a, a scriptures that, that uh, cause you some concern, that's a good thing. And, it, and it's good to wrestle with it. It's very spiritually healthy for us. Uh, it, it causes growth and maturity to really think about these things deeply. And so the writer is, is doing that. He basically has just preached hellfire. But I tell you, I take such a lesson from this man as a shepherd, as a pastor, as someone who cares for other people's souls, who has that responsibility. That right on the heels of preaching hellfire, he tells us, and I'll just, and, and he, tell, he calls them beloved. And though I speak in this manner, and it seems that I think there's just a healthy thing about that. To say that people will be eternally separated from God makes a man cry. And I think that he's crying in a sense. It certainly, he's very compassionate as he's saying these difficult words. So let me just open with an illustration that came to mind. About 45 miles west of Albany, New York, there's a small creek called Schoharie Creek. It passes under Interstate 90, which spans the creek with a 540-foot bridge. In the spring of 1987, a snow melt combined with nearly six inches of rain produced the worst flood of that creek in 50 years. On the morning of April 5th, at about 10.45 a.m., a 60-foot section of the bridge collapsed. And it fell 110 feet into the creek. At the time of the collapse, one car and one tractor-trailer were on the bridge. Before the road could be blocked off, three more cars drove into the gap. Ten people lost their lives. The unusual thing about this collapse is that bridges are so often, uh, the unusual thing about this collapse is that bridges uh, so often collapse because of uh, high water. That is, the rise of water and debris hitting a bridge structure causes it to foul. In this case, it was 110 feet above the water. The National Transportation Safety Board investigated the accident and determined the bridge fell because piers holding it up were not protected from erosion caused by the flow of water. The report added that large stones, which could have minimized the erosion, had not been maintained. There was neglect and a lack of periodic inspections of the foundation. And so I think this text this morning causes us to sort of inspect the foundation. What is your life built upon? Is it built upon faith in Jesus Christ, in his death for your sin, his resurrection for your justification? Are you saved by the blood of the Lamb? And the Lord is using these scriptures to cause us to give us a little inspection, if you will. And I, and I can see the love of God just pouring through these verses to those maybe who are deeply connected to a church and have been for years, maybe brought up in some religious system or organization, and yet have no real faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so on both sides, those of us who have been there, done that, it's like, how's my foundation? It's good to take a little look and re-examine what is my life, life built upon. And for those who are not in that place, he's saying, you're, you're going 80 miles an hour and you're driving to an open bridge. You're going to fall to your death. Imagine somebody pull over on the side of the road on that morning of April 5th, right? Aware that the bridge is out. The bridge is out, right? When, what would we do? We'd park our car. We'd get out on the side of the road, waving our arms frantically, screaming, stop, stop. You're on a one-way path to destruction. Of course that's what they would do. Would we take heed? That's what the Lord's asking you to take heed this morning. This is a very real thing. Jesus has really lived. He really lived. There was a man, Jesus, grew up in Nazareth, and he demonstrated through his words and his power and his actions that he was not a normal man, that he was actually God-man, that he had come from heaven. He came from heaven. He took on a human nature. And he revealed, God loves you. But there's a massive separation. The bridge is out in your life. You are separated from eternal heaven because of your sin. You've fallen short of God's glory. And so the writer is writing to say, the bridge is out. What are you doing? Jesus said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. He built his house on a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Great not in the sense that the massive house fell, it's, it's the result. Fallen away. Not recoverable. Hmm. So the way I see this chapter 6... By the way, <laughs> is that the author, uh, again, context, he's, he's dealing with people who have stunted growth. That's a concern to him because of their lack of use of practice in living what the Word says. But with that, there's also concern. It's like stunted growth could also indicate that maybe you've received the Word of God but it hasn't actually resulted in saving faith. Now, I'm not making these things up. Jesus, as you know, famously gave the parable of the guy who went out and sowed seed. And the seed fell on the path that the man was walking on. Some seed fell on uh, earth that was full of stone. And the, and, the, and the seed actually didn't penetrate very far. And then there was others that sowed. The seed went in and... Fruit came up, but also weeds came up with it. And then there was that last condition, the fourth condition, where the seed went in and fruit came up. 
And the Lord explained that parable, and I think it's very appropriate to this situation in that, uh, you know, those who are on the stony ground, that seed, he said the seed is the word of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's people who will hear it, and they'll receive it, and he said they receive it with joy. Wow! <laughs> Man, God's cool! Right? And they start to pray a little bit, and they attend church, and they enjoy the friendship and the food and all the wonderful things at church and the community. And they experience some really good things. But then when trouble comes, it dies away because there's no root. It doesn't take root. It's just stony. It can't get down very far. And then the other seed that gets choked off by the weeds, he goes, that's the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. And so it chokes it off, and it doesn't ever actually produce much and live. But that fourth condition, that's where the Word of God goes in and germinates and causes new life, eternal life that's experienced here and now. And so with that in mind, I think that's what caused the author to go off on this little tangent here. He's like, stunted growth? Now that's concerning. <laughs> it could indicate that there are definitely, and he says it here, right, in verses 9 through 12, he strongly encourages, look, I know that this does not apply to you. Your growth is stunted, but we're going to deal with that. <laughs> right? I'm going to add a little fertilizer. We're going to salt. We're going to dig it up. We're going to do some stuff. But there also could indicate that some of you have had an experience with God that feels very genuine. But it's not life-saving. And so he says those words. It's a real thing. So, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, because of your stunted growth... Because you're dull of hearing, because of your lack of practice with the Word of God, and, it, and, and I've got so much he says I want to say to you, but it, it's hard. I, I, I find that I have, to, I have to give you a happy meal. <laughs> That's what I call happens in the Sunday school. Right? You're taking big truths, but you're presenting it to children. I said, it's a happy meal. Right? You give them a, you're giving it to them with a little craft. There's a little candy in there. And it's something that they can eat, and it's, it's relatable to them. He's like, that's kind of where you're at, but you shouldn't be there. You should be eating, uh, well, we don't eat fast food, right? So uh, you should be eating solid food, though. Right? And so kind of surprisingly, you know, because they can't hear the hard things, he goes ahead and tells them hard things. I'm just going to give you solid food anyway. Because we're going to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. And my friends, I want to repeat, I want to just say to you now, the main point is a life that is built on Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John 17, 3. Jesus stood up, boldly stood up and said, I, parens, and I alone am the only way. I and I alone am the truth and the life. Repentance and faith in Christ produces fruit in the life Growth produces fruit 
It's evidence of life. And that's where the author is going here. Or as we often say, the root produces fruit. Right? And so, interestingly enough, you know, in spite of their dullness, and, and they've sort of flattened out. They've sort of just sort of not, you know, they're just coasting now. And as I said, they've maybe gone back a little bit to their Jewish roots. He's like, well, I don't, you know, nevertheless, we're going to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. And he tells us six things here. It kind of seems like they come in pairs. So let us, let us, including himself, right? I love that. Let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. It's two sides of the same coin, brothers and sisters. Repentance and faith. Repentance means a change of mind. It's a U-turn. I'm going this direction. I change my mind because I realize I'm going in the wrong direction. And then I turn around and here's the other side of the coin. But I'm going towards Jesus. And, and it's actually the, it's the grace of God working in the heart of a sinner that causes them to be aware that I need to turn around. And so they turn around and by faith they, they attach themselves to the truth of Jesus in the gospel. That in Him is life and forgiveness. So he says, let's, let's go on from that. This is such a good thing to hear, you know, because... Uh, oftentimes we can get stuck in our Christianity where it's just like, oh man, I'm such a bad Christian. I just constantly fail. I don't love people like I should love. I don't forgive like I should forgive. And I'm just not committed in serving and I know I should be. And then it's like, grow up. <laughs> You're kind of just stuck in this place of constantly turning and turning and turning. And, and he's just saying, you know what? Your confidence in Christ is going to grow from getting out of that that rut, and actually trusting what he has said, making use of his promises for your life intentionally, and going out by faith. Get out of the comfort zone. Something the Lord is, is constantly saying to myself these days. Keep going forward. That's why I keep saying. As you guys know, I mean, this is one of my favorite things. Cup of coffee, early morning, nobody's out. End of the driveway, just talk, thank God for life. And I just keep like all these things that I want to not do, <laughs> all the responsibilities that I just don't want responsibilities. I just want to watch movies <laughs> and eat popcorn and just veg out. There's a place and time for that. And the Lord's like, keep going, keep going, keep going forward. Get out of the boat, Scott. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Trust me. I will support you in this personal little storm that you think is crazy. And you gain confidence because he meets with us there. And it's like, wow, you actually showed up. You know what? I didn't feel anything. There was no feelings. The hair did not go up on, the, uh, on my arms. In fact, I, I had all sorts of butterflies and anxiety, and I don't know if I can do it. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of your, your faith step, something, a thought comes to mind or a word comes out, and it's like, that is you living through me right now. And these people and all this is going on, they have no idea how powerful that is hap what that's done in your soul. It's like, he's alive. 
and you discover Jesus is alive. And, and he's, he's answering my prayer and he's honoring the faith that I've, that I've stepped out in for him. So the author's like, you know, you, you can't live on a foundation. You, you, gotta, you gotta build the house. You gotta move on. And that's done through listening to his word and, and, and taking his promise. God can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible because he's holy, which means all he ever does is good. It's impossible for him to do wrong. You may not, and I may not, oftentimes do not understand why he allows things and, and where are you, but you see, through the confidence that you've experienced through walking by faith, it's like, okay, well, you know what? At my new birth as a little baby growing up as a Christian, I would have freaked out. But now I'm realizing, no, he's there. And I've learned by experience, saved so many years ago, that early in my Christian experience, the Lord did a lot, manifested a lot of supernatural stuff. A lot. Visions, answers, supernatural things happened in our lives. A lot. Not so much as much anymore. Not so much visible anymore. He's like, okay, that's good. We're getting you rooted. We're getting you grounded in my love and my faithfulness. But now it's like a muscle. You got to exercise that baby <laughs> or it's going to atrophy. And so like faith, you just start to step out by faith. So move off of the foundation, the author says. Whoa, that was a long monologue, sorry. Verse 2, also of the doctrine of baptisms, plural, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. All right, baptisms, plural. Uh, you know, you're obviously water baptism. By the way, we'll do one this spring. If anybody wants to get baptized, we have a little kiddie pool. We have a great time. Uh, just public declaration of your faith, right? Water baptism. But there's other baptisms. Jesus said before he went back to heaven, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, once you're born again, you get baptized into the body of Christ. That's an invisible thing that happens just very organically, but it happens. Laying out of hands. Laying out of hands is a practice that you see throughout the book of Acts. Oftentimes it was a recognition, it was an identification of here's, here's a brother that's come to faith, like Acts chapter 8, right? They laid hands on them. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon them or it would be used to identify somebody for ministry in the church. Laying out of hands. Re resurrection of the dead. Oh my God. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And eternal judgment. Verse 3, and this will we do if God permits. Of course God will permit, but it's, this is a great verse that the author is recognizing the sovereignty of God. If you don't move, we ain't moving. Of course he will. He's just saying, I, I think he's just saying, we need God's favor as we move on here. And so then we come to the famous verses 4 to 6. <laughs> so these are the, the verses where this person is frantically waving their arms. <laughs> All right. Clearly there is a, a road, uh, sorry, a, a line that can be crossed. It is a point of no return. The author says it is impossible. And if you just jump down to verse 6, 
to renew them again to repentance. Everything between that, he explains why it's impossible. Which, by the way, I find that, theologically speaking, (laughs) I find that really interesting. Verse 3 is this one little tiny verse where he declares his dependence on God's sovereignty. Verses 4 to 6, he declares man's choice. That's what makes it impossible, is that man chooses to reject Jesus. Again, the main focus here is a person's relationship with Jesus Christ. So, can you lose your salvation? Uh, theologically, we call that uh, someone who would hold to an Arminian perspective. If these words are new to you, don't worry about it. It's okay. Those are just big words. It's a guy named Arminius who years ago, centuries ago, said that you could. And he would give his arguments perhaps from this text. And there's others who would say, no, you can't. Once saved, you're eternally secure in God's grace. Uh, I fall into that camp. Uh, I make no embarrassing comment about that. I'm very happy to talk about you, talk about that with you. If you think otherwise, that's fine. Uh, the point is, are you connected to Jesus? Then persevere by faith. Okay? Um, so let's look at some of the words that he uses, and we'll see if we can make sense out of this. And I hope to show you why, at least why I've come to the conclusion that I've come to. Um, he says... First of all, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. By the way, how do you balance that? That word, it's impossible. And he's implying for God to save a person. To, to bring them back to repentance is what he said. How do you balance that with the words of Gabriel to Mary on that wonderful day when he announced that she was going to become pregnant? <laughs> Virgin woman you're going to become pregnant. And she said, okay, I'm willing to do this. And Gabriel said, there's nothing impossible for God. All things are possible. How do you balance that? Well, um, when you look at Mary and her situation, basically, she... She did have some questions to Gabriel, naturally. Basically, she's like, I understand what you're saying. I get it. Conception, birth. God bless you, Anna. <laughs> if anything happens, just let us know. We'll, we'll freak out like everybody else, and your wonderful husband will take care of it. <laughs> um, she goes, I get it. I understand. You're talking about me going to have a baby, right? No, sorry, I, I, sorry. She goes, I believe what you're saying. I just don't understand it. That's what she said. Okay? I believe what you're saying because I know that with God all things are possible. I don't understand it. That's faith. That's faith. I believe you're an angel. You're a good angel. You only do what God wants you to do, which means you always tell the truth. And you've told me something I don't understand, but I believe it. 
And then Gabriel makes that declaration. Well, then <laughs> with that, when there's faith in what God has said, all things are possible. I think the point here, this is one of my first points, why I think this per the, the people that the author is writing about, I don't believe are Christians. I think they're part of the group. But the point that I'm making, sorry, is that it's impossible because there's not a faith. There's not a saving faith. And therefore, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, all right, and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And what makes this so challenging and complicated is I personally relate to every one of those words. And I know that I'm born again. I know I'm going to heaven. That is a, that's an established foundation in my life. Because Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. And I know it by experience. There was a change, a transformation from death to life. And so these words all make perfect sense to me as a Christian. But they don't necessarily mean that the person was a Christian. All right? Enlightened. It just simply means exposed to light. It means there's, the mind can receive and understand truth that has been shared. The light, of course, is the light of God, the truth of God. He talks about have tasted the heavenly gift. He mentions again, verse 5, tasted the good word of God. Interesting words, right? So it means that there's an actual experience. There's, there's a tasting. In fairness, the author does say in chapter 2, verse 9, that Jesus suffered death and by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. It was an actual ex immersive experience. But here's what I want also to say to you. And believe me, I'm not trying to read this from a Calvinistic perspective. I'm just trying to be real with what the words say. And let that influence my perspective. But taste... It's also said of Jesus that when he was on the cross, they gave him wine mixed with gall, anesthetic. He tasted it, but wouldn't drink. So it was an actual experience. It was in his mouth, but he wouldn't swallow it. Which is interesting because it seems like then an apt description of his death. Yes, he actually died, but he didn't stay dead. Like my Buffalo Bills... They tasted victory. <laughs> they were 13 seconds away <laughs> from going to the championship game. <laughs> and they lost. They tasted victory. <laughs> so in other words, you can taste the heavenly gift, which I believe would be Jesus, a life, an experience with Him. Or you can taste the good word of God. He talked about uh, being partakers of the Holy Spirit. It means a sharing. Which, by the way, I find that really interesting that the Holy Spirit, who is God, the Holy Spirit is God, I find it interesting, actually it seemed a little weird to me, that the person of the Holy Spirit would allow himself to be part of someone's life, actively in, in sharing things with this person if they're not a Christian. Certainly, he's the one who seals me and communicates and does all the so many works inside of me. 
as a believer. But he's saying they're a partaker, they're a sharer. And so just even the words alone, although they sound like somebody who is a Christian, doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And again, in the greater context, because there's an observation of stunted growth, the author is wise enough to go, there's people among you who aren't really Christians. And to those, I tearfully plead. The bridge is out. Stop. Inspect your foundation. It's possible to experience these without being regenerated. Case in point, Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus Christ. The light of the world, <laughs> he was enlightened, perhaps more convincingly than 99.99% of the rest of humanity just by virtue of the fact that he was called by Jesus to be a disciple and lived with him in real time for three years. The light of the world. In fact, Jesus exposed him to light when he said in John chapter 6, about a year prior to his betrayal, he said, one of you is going to betray me. I know what's going on in your heart, Judas. You're with us. You're not really with us. Oh my goodness. Enlightened, he wasn't saved. Tasted the heavenly gift? Tasted the good word of God? Tasted the heavenly gift? He was in that boat just before it sunk when Jesus comes walking on the water and then ultimately stops the storm, gets in the boat, and you know what the response of Judas along with his friends? In the boat. They're on their knees, worshiping. Truly, you are the Son of God. He tasted a real experience. He sat there during the Sermon on the Mount, best sermon ever delivered of all time. Partaker of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sent him out two by two. Matthew 10, he gave them power. Go exercise demons. Heal people that are sick. Raise the dead. He did that. Wasn't a Christian. A little light reading this morning. <laughs> then he says in verse 6, if they fall away, where literally where they go from high to low, where they turn back away from, in search of, impossible to bring them back to repentance since they crucify for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth, and then he gives this interesting illustration, the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. So the root produces the fruit. There's evidence of life is produced by the outcome of that life. And the author is saying to us that if God, if Jesus Christ is your life, it will produce a change in you. And you know what that change is? 
It's self-loathing and Christ-loving. That is the primary transformation at the, at the moment of conversion. Self-loathing, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are, are, are meek, <laughs> right? Who hunger and thirst. Self-loathing, Christ-loving. You shall be filled. You will become merciful. You will see God because I will have purified your heart. You'll be a peacemaker and you'll endure persecution. That's evidence of the, of the transformative work of the gospel in a person's life. Verse 8, you can't fool God. <laughs> you will reap what you sow. And though you, it may look like we're all in the same field, God will determine, and he knows, as he did made known to Judas. So, just a few points, friends, why I think further that these verses speak, do not speak of losing salvation. I think it's just a, a, a wake-up call. I think the author's standing and he's saying, look, I, I think there's, there's people that, that are not Christians. Um, and he's standing by the side of the road waving, the bridge is out, you need to stop. And you need to really examine your faith, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. So some of the reasons I think that is because of the greater context of Hebrews is that the author has repeatedly made reference to the people in the wilderness, his forefathers that were saved at the Passover, right? Application of blood of a lamb, miraculous demonstration of God's powers showing that there's only one God, a baptism through a Red Sea, destruction of Pharaoh's army, fed daily by manna, living presence of God's uh, fire and cloud and water out of a rock. I mean, they tasted, they saw, they partook, they experienced. Light was shown to them. They get right up to the promised land and they don't go in. No faith. So I think because of that, I think also because of verse 9, <laughs> But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. So clearly there's a distinction being made in verses 4 through 8. And it seems to me that verse 9 sort of indicates that he's, I've been talking to you about people that I have some seriously big questions about, but not so for you. Because there's evidence of salvation in your life. Although it hasn't borne as much fruit as it should have, but there is a love for others. There is a, a desire to, to do God's word and to persevere. These are the better things that the author makes reference to. So those two things, to me, uh, help me be more comfortable, if you will. I still get uncomfortable with verses 4 through 6 especially. But I believe based on that, and, and actually one further thing. And it's in verse 6 where he says, those who fall away, they crucify again. No. <laughs> you crossed a line right there. No. Anybody who has the high priest, Jesus Christ, 
actively living in their life, giving them victory after victory, forgiveness, forgiveness, again and again and again. And I could go on again and again until the Lord returns because I keep sinning and He keeps forgiving because of what He accomplished on the cross. He loves me. My Jesus loves me and He loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much He gave His life for you. He is the bridge to heaven. He is. He and He alone. No self-respecting Christian is going to crucify Him. No. What He accomplished, that is my life. To crucify again? You know, I thought, what, what is he saying? What is the author trying to tell us here? And I went back and I thought, well, why did they crucify Jesus the first time? You know why? Self-loving, Christ-hating. That's why. Self-loving. It perhaps could be no better described than Jesus' own words in a parable. We will not have this man to rule over us. And indeed, when they had their moment, Pilate said, who do I let go here? This convicted murderer or the Son of God? Remember their reply? We have no king but Caesar. That's why they crucified him. And so somebody who's had an experience with Christianity in so many real ways, nah, I want it my way. <laughs> Self-loving, Christ-hating, Unpardonable sin? Yep. Uh, for various reasons, I've been listening to some podcasts recently. Uh, I'm just closing this up here. <laughs> uh, and I've stumbled across uh, an interview with Josh Harris. Some of you may know. Famously wrote a book as a teenager, <laughs> I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, sold millions. Turned this young man into a Christian celebrity. Uh, shortly thereafter, he marries and becomes pastor down in uh, Maryland, part of the Sovereign Grace Church Movement. In 2019, Josh Harris posted on Instagram that he had kissed Christianity goodbye. Uh, publicly renounced his faith. He said, I am no longer a Christian. And shortly thereafter, he actually published a course of how to deconstruct your faith. And so I've listened to Josh talk interviewed by 
uh, Christian men interviewed by non-Christian men, which makes sense. People outside of the church want to talk to Josh because he would be their spokesman of why that's a bunch of baloney. <laughs> we need you to tell and confirm, right? And so, you know, I've listened, and i got to tell you, he, I've, I find him to be a really nice guy, uh, sincerely uh, honest, genuine, thoughtful. Uh, clearly, he's very openly trying to work out his spirituality at this time after, <clears throat> excuse me, divorcing his wife and making this, you know, earthquake sort of Christian celebrity guy. I'm stepping down from a pastor, I'm divorcing my wife, and I'm not a Christian anymore. And so I've listened to some interviews with Josh, as well as with some other people in a different situation that have kind of ended in the same place, fallen away. Uh, let me just say, I, I don't know. I'm thankful that I am not the judge of all the earth because I can't figure it out. It would see, everything would seem to indicate, real dude. But he, by his own mouth, is saying, no, that's not true anymore. And so, you know, I've listened and I've heard about him explaining a lot of the things that led to him doing this. Uh, and it's messy. It was really bad. Like, leaders, his personal mentor, sort of the face of the church movement, the brand, if you will, when accusations came forward, they didn't want to hear it because they got a little too big for their britches. And the risk of being honest and actually listening to ladies who were saying, no, there's stuff going on here. And Josh saw that. And men that he loved and had mentored him. It made him very angry and disillusioned. Their, their unchristian response was horrible. And it, and it caused a scar deep inside of this man. And he's like, I'm done. I don't want any more to do with this. And I've listened to others from other situations, similar, same place. But you know what I never heard? And the Lord showed this to me the other day as I'm preparing this message. I have never heard Josh say... In the midst of everything that happened, I went to the Word of God and I claimed His promises and they failed me. I've never heard him say that. I've never heard him say, I poured out my heart to Jesus. I didn't know what else to do. I ran to Him. He was my refuge and I found in Him someone who is tender and gentle and loving and understanding and wise and holy and who will eventually bring his judgment on people, he'll sort it out. I never heard Josh say, Jesus was my refuge and I am a Christian. I don't like what happened, but I found comfort and refuge in Christ alone. Never heard him say that. You know why? Because it's not true. God's Word always accomplishes what it's put into your heart to do if we will respond by faith. Jesus will never let us down. And again, I'm not here to say he's, he's going to hell or he's not. It's not my business. 
I'm just inspecting my foundation. And the Lord is using these scriptures to get you to inspect your foundation. One thing that's consistent in all these interviews that I've listened to from various church problems is that men do bad things. Men do bad things. Women do bad things. In the church, they do bad things. Really bad stuff. And, for this, and, and, and it gets horrible and it's, it's terrible what happens. But I never hear anybody give a shout of victory. Like Paul and Silas in the prison after being unjustly beaten. Singing praises to God at midnight. I never hear anybody saying that. I never hear anybody going, you know what? I can sort of relate to Paul who said, I can do all things through Christ because he's strengthening me. Man, when you get your legs cut out from under you in your Christianity because of the behavior of, of men who should be caring for your soul and you find out they're exploiting you, Am I ranting right now? I am. <laughs> yeah. Right? I need your accountability. We're a little tiny thing. There's no church in Ithaca that's, that's mega. Nobody. There's hardly megas around here at all. Doesn't matter. My heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. And it is... Jim Cimbala from Brooklyn Tab once said, that microphone is a drug. And as soon as you get behind it and you got people looking at you and you're talking, oh my God, how your flesh just loves it. And if that goes unchecked, Josh's mentor told him there was some feedback coming from his book. People that later after years, decades of this book being out on the market, they said, you know what? Your book didn't help me. It hurt me. His mentor said, don't ever listen to that crap. In one sense, I can understand it. In the other sense, like, no, maybe I should actually give time to say, what's going on? Maybe, you know, I'm not God. I wrote a book. God wrote a book. This will never fail you. Where's the shout of victory? Do you have a shout of victory? Are you tempted? You find that Jesus meets you in your moment? Right in your moment. It's like, oh man. Uh, but Lord, your word says, and so I'll just, even though everything in my system is going, I so desperately want to hate this person. <laughs> your word says, I want you to love your enemy. Well, you guess what? You're going to have to show me how to do that. Because I know you did it. You've been tempted every way like we have. And I'm coming to this throne boldly. And I'm asking you. That's the thing I'm not hearing from Josh. But I want to hear it from you, saints. I want Jesus. I want you to know. And the main point here I'm trying to say is that the author is, is talking about the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. That great and glorious and life-saving, life-giving Son of God who demonstrated His power and His compassion when He walked this planet hasn't changed. 
And so don't feel ripped off that you didn't live 2,000 years ago. And you, you know, gosh, it would have been so cool to be in that boat. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. (laughs) They were freaking out. He's the same. That's why we read the Gospels. To learn that that same Jesus is in heaven with all the same compassion and wisdom and insight and light. I am the light of the world. So run to him. Cling to him. Trust his words. Take these into your system. We will grow when we actually start to practice what it says, when we talk and walk at the same time. (laughs) A little hard for some of us to do. Let's stand and pray. Really not much more to say, Lord. I think you've done a good job today. We thank you. We look up to you, Jesus, as our eternal king. We do want you to rule over us. We want you. We plead. We, we love your ruling over us. We have no other king. You are our king. You're a righteous king. You're the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And I thank you that you share generously. Thank you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you. (laughs)